Today at Reader's Corner, University of Chicago law professor Eric Posner, author of How Antitrust Law Failed Workers. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Since the 1970s, Americans have seen inequality skyrocket and job opportunities stagnate. The reasons are multifaceted, including the decline of organized labor, changes in technology, and the introduction of tax policies that favored the rich. But a missing piece of the puzzle is the consolidation of employers, which has resulted in limited competition in labor markets. In his newest book, How Antitrust Law Failed Workers, Eric Posner documents the failure of antitrust law to address labor market concentration. He argues that only through reforming antitrust law can we shield workers from employers' overwhelming market power. Posner's book is a powerful guide for anyone interested in fighting economic inequality and a primer on the true nature of the American economy, one that is increasingly uncompetitive and tilted against workers. Eric Posner's work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. He's a distinguished professor of law at the University of Chicago. His most recent books are Radical Markets and Last Resort, The Financial Crisis and the Future of Bailouts. Eric Posner, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks so much, Bob. It's really nice to be here. Well, Eric, uh, I have to tell you that I'm sitting here uh, looking out on a beautiful day in Boise next door to Albertson Foods, uh, Mm -hmm. which announced a merger with Kroger, as you and everyone else knows I know our listeners are focused on this, given how much it's been in the news here especially, and and what impact it might have on the grocery business, consumers, and employees. There was a report by a news source called Boise Dev, which is kind of a business news uh, outlet. Uh, They do a great job. And uh, they reported on an April 2023 filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that Albertson's top 10 executives could take home as much as $146 million if they quit or laid off as part of the merger deal. And there's another report from the Economic Policy Institute that says the Kroger and Albertson's merger will reduce the number of outside employment options available to workers and place downward pressure on grocery store workers' wages. They claim that the merger will permanently reduce the wages of 776,000 grocery store workers. Their annual earnings will fall by $334 million, about a $450 loss in annual wages per worker. I, I can't believe that as I'm preparing last night, reading my underlines of your book and thinking about what questions I was going to ask you regarding your book, how antitrust failed workers, I get this report on how this particular merger will do apparently exactly that. Maybe we could pick this conversation up from there. If you could help us understand how the current approach to antitrust will be applied to the Albertson-Kroger merger, and then what's missing from this current field of antitrust enforcement. Sure. No, it's an excellent example. The timing is is actually kind of amazing. Yeah. So uh, antitrust law is the law that's used to address problems of cartels and monopolies, and it also applies to mergers. And so in the traditional way of thinking about a merger, you might imagine, uh, for example, well, let's take it, two grocery store chains and, and they merge. 
if they're big enough, and that's our situation here, they would inform the government. And this would mean specifically the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission. And one of these agencies would review the merger and then either approve it or, um, you know, try to block it under one of the antitrust laws, which says that a merger um, is illegal if it, quote, substantially lessens competition. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's all the language really says, quite vague. And the traditional way of looking at a merger like this would be just to look at its impact on consumer prices. So what the uh, what the agency, whether it's the Justice Department or the FTC or ultimately a court would do is uh, look around the country at places where the two grocery stores are in the same city. And they they basically would just it's, it's actually not that complicated. They might say, look. Um, here's a here's a town where there are five grocery stores that compete, and there's a Kroger's and an Albertsons. So if we go down from five to four, is that going to affect prices? Consumers will still be able to choose among the four stores. Maybe prices won't be affected because those four stores are still going to compete with each other a lot. Prices won't be substantially affected. Competition will not be substantially lessened. That's the term. Or there might be markets where there's only two uh, grocery stores, and if and if those uh, firms merge, then there's not going to be any choice left. Uh, so that's the traditional way of looking at it. You just look at the impact on uh, consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the details of this merger. You know, it may be if these grocery store chains are not in the same cities most of in most cities, um, there won't be a substantial reduction in competition for consumers. Um, or, or, you know, it, it depends on the details. But what the tradition is not to look at the impact on workers. And so grocery stores also employ people. Um, and they employ all kinds of people. They employ cashiers. They employ people on the back who are um, putting stock on, uh, or, you know, checking stock or collecting it from trucks. They uh, employ specialists like butchers. They employ IT folk. And um, a merger can also reduce competition among employers for these people. And the impact of the merger can also be felt by employees, both in the form of reduction of wages, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but also reduction in employment and jobs. And for uh, kind of complicated and mysterious reasons, that uh, that impact of mergers has been ignored uh, throughout the entire history of uh, merger law, which goes back more than a century, um, although that's that's now changing. So there's the horizontal merger guidelines, which you point out in your book, is what the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission uh, uses to screen these mergers for antitrust violations. Is that where either the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission could insert uh, some of the qualifications or the the questions that you would raise uh, regarding uh, the impact on employee? Yes, they could, and you know they're 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 going to um, the the horizontal merger guidelines are currently under revision. So the last draft, uh, the current version that's in force, was issued in 2010, and a couple of years ago, the agencies announced that they were going to revise the guidelines. Now, I was in the Justice Department for a year, 
And I, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly what they did because um, they haven't issued the revision. But what they have done publicly is announced that they were interested in hearing what people have to say about labor, which is a pretty strong indication that, you know, that they're going to revise, um, the, you know, they're going to add something about labor to the merger guidelines. And just very recently, they issued a, a, um, a proposed regulation that basically will require um, firms that want to merge to disclose information about how they treat their workers, how much they pay them, who they are, where they're located, which is a very strong indication that uh, they're going to take that information into account when they review mergers. Mm-hmm. The reason I asked that question is because I'm aware of Senator Amy Klobuchar's book on antitrust, which she wrote just a couple of years ago, and her chairmanship of the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust Competition Policy and Consumer Rights. And I was trying to figure out who has the responsibility for the changes we need uh, to protect employees. And it sounds to me like the Department of Justice and and, uh, the FTC could get this done on its own. Uh, they can, although Congress, you know, Congress could help as, as well. Okay. So the, you know, the statute is very, uh, the, the relevant antitrust statutes are quite vague. They talk about competition generally. They, they you know, they, the antitrust laws are supposed to promote competition. They don't say only in, you know, consumer markets. They just say in general. And so the courts over the years have interpreted this language to refer to all kinds of markets, including labor markets. It's just that the labor market cases are very rare, and the uh, the agencies, the DOJ and the FTC, have largely ignored um, the labor markets. Mm-hmm. But they haven't completely ignored labor markets. And in fact, um, in 2022, the Justice Department did, uh, for the very first time, challenge a merger based on its impact on uh, labor markets. So the Justice Department believed that it could do that, you know, based on existing law. And even before the horizontal merger guidelines had been changed, because those guidelines aren't really law. They're they're more like um, kind of a statement of policy. And this was a merger of uh, two uh, book publishers, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, and the Justice Department challenged the merger, not based on the kind of traditional worry that it would result in higher book prices, but based on the labor market impact, that it would result in uh, lower payments to authors. Mm-hmm. And they were successful. They blocked the uh, merger in court. And as a result, uh, it never went through. You're listening to Reader's Corner University of Chicago professor Eric Posner, author of How Antitrust Law Failed Workers. While we're on court cases, let's talk about a couple that I found very interesting in your book, and I think it'll help our listeners understand just what we're trying to get at here. Uh, The 2019 case involving the Western Range Association, an example of how the courts are handling collusion by employers to fix wages. Could you explain that? Yes, the Western Ranch Association is a, is an organization of, of ranchers, basically. Um, these are uh, people who own vast tracts of land, mostly in the West and the South. 
and um, they have um, herds of, of sheep on their lands. And I think the, you know, I think these are kind of like hobby farms, but, you know, there's a commercial aspect to it as well. Um, the, the United States is not a big producer of, of sheep, but there are, you know, there are these herds of sheep. And so the job of sheep herding is, is a really difficult one, uh, because, uh, these, the people who, who take care of the sheep, you know, they have to take them up into the mountains where it's cold. They live outside. Uh, they have to protect the sheep from wolves. It's, it's a very difficult job. And generally speaking, it's not a job that Americans, uh, want or, you know, if they do, people who might be capable of, of taking this job, um, you know, they probably demand fairly generous compensation. What the um, Western Range Association does and, and another organization involved in the lawsuit is on behalf of the landowners, they import foreign labor, mainly from Peru, according to the allegations of, of the plaintiffs. Um, so these are people who herd sheep in, in Peru and other uh, countries, mainly in Latin America, where there's more of a tradition of sheep herding and you know, they're people with a lot of experience. They're also people who are extremely poor and, you know, are willing to come to the United States and work for extremely low wages. So um, they're brought up to the United States and they're paid, you know, basically the absolute minimum that um, they can be paid under state or federal law. And I believe that, you know, at the beginning of the period, that this lawsuit covers, that could be as little as five or six dollars an hour in some places. And according to the complaint, this uh, Western Range Association, this organization fixed the wages and also may have blocked basically competition over the workers among the ranchers so that you couldn't hire away a worker from one ranch. So, you know, the upshot of this was rather than competing for these workers, which would have resulted in you know, reasonable wages, livable wages, um, according to the, the plaintiffs who were, who were workers represented by public interest lawyers, the, uh, the ranchers conspired to keep the wages at the absolute lowest level possible. So this is a violation of antitrust law. If the facts are true, um, the, uh, ranchers conspired to violate, uh, antitrust law because rather than compete for the workers, they were basically agreeing among themselves to use this organization to fix their wages at a lo as low a price as possible, which is, you know, just like from an antitrust perspective, a bunch of sellers, let's say automobile sellers, agreeing to fix the prices of cars mm -hmm. at as high a pro high level as possible. Mm -hmm. But um, this case just received uh, a really negative reaction from the court's who, uh, you know, just didn't, you know, it, it was a complicated case with, which interacted with immigration law in, in sort of confusing ways. But the courts were obviously just not willing to accept this idea that there was something wrong with what the ranchers were doing and dismissed the case without allowing the plaintiffs to, to bring evidence to trial. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the role of franchising and its impact on on workers with uh, both, I guess you could say, anti-poaching and non-compete agreements. Maybe we'll take them one at a time, help our listeners understand just what this anti-poaching issue is and and uh, how, in fact, that may be 
one of the reasons why there's this newer interest in labor market concentration? Sure. So, so antitrust, you know, is devoted to the idea of, of free markets. Businesses are supposed to compete with each other for customers on, you know, one side of the market and for workers on the other side of the market. Um, when they compete with each other for customers, that drives down prices. When they compete with each other for workers, that drives up wages. That's generally good for the economy. It's, it's good for people. The concern is when, uh, businesses collude with each other and they can do that in a lot of ways. So on the, uh, customer side of the market, they might fix prices. On the worker side of the market, they might fix wages. Now there's, there are more subtle ways of colluding. So on the customer side of the market, you know, two firms might get together and say, look, you have your customers. I have my customers. Let's agree not to poach them away from each other. In other words, uh, you know, like um, one department store says to another, you know, I'm not going to send flyers to your customers to try to draw them away from you. You don't do the same. That way, you know, we don't compete and we can charge everybody higher prices. Okay. And so mm-hmm. employers can do the same thing. And those are called no poach agreements. Um, what you want is for employers to try to attract uh, workers at their competitors by offering them higher wages or better working conditions. Um, these no poach agreements turn out to be pretty common. They're illegal under antitrust law, uh, at least if, you know, there's no relationship at all between the employers. So there's a famous case from 2010 where all the big tech companies like Google and Apple agreed not to poach each other's software engineers. And they were sued by the Justice Department and by the workers themselves. And they quickly settled the case because that was plainly illegal. Okay, so more recently, a bunch of academics discovered after doing some research that the major fast food franchises like McDonald's, Burger King, Arby's, Dunkin' Donuts, uh, you know, all the, these famous companies sure. had uh, inserted no poach clauses in their franchise agreements. So what this meant, to take McDonald's as an example, is that if you have a bunch of, um, you know, all the McDonald's restaurants had effectively agreed that, um, you know, not to try to hire away an employee from each other. So if there's, you know, one McDonald's restaurant on 12th Street and another on 14th Street, and an employee on the 12th Street restaurant wanted to leave and go to the 14th Street restaurant, the 14th Street restaurant would not hire that person away. So um, that's a no poach agreement. And um, when this came out, it caused a bit of a scandal because these are very low wage workers earning, you know, maybe $8 an hour, $10 an hour. They're hard workers. You know, it's not much fun, these jobs. And um, there are, you know, real cases where people were trying to get better jobs. And, you know, one uh, in an actual case that was brought called uh, DeLands versus McDonald's, one of the plaintiffs was a woman who was not being paid very well at one McDonald's restaurant. She applied for a job at another. Uh, at that second restaurant, they were willing to pay her several dollars more an hour because she had skills that they valued more than the first restaurant did. But when uh, it was learned that she was already working at that first restaurant, the second restaurant felt that they had to honor the no poach clause and they refused to hire her. 
And as a result, she didn't get this, uh, this, uh, additional money and, uh, actually ended up working at another store at, at a, you know, outside of McDonald's at a, at a much lower wage. So initially what happened was that, um, a bunch of states, the attorneys general at various states, including Washington state, for example, sued, um, all of these, um, franchises and the franchises settled by agreeing to remove the no poach clause from the franchise agreement. But um, now there are a number of uh, antitrust cases brought by these workers that are making their way through the courts. And the the argument is that the effect of these no poach clauses has been to suppress uh, the wages of the workers as a result of the collusion among the various members of the franchise, the various restaurants, the workers are paid less than they would be otherwise. So we'll see how these cases turn out. It's a little early uh, to tell, but uh, but these franchise agreements have affected millions of workers who have very likely been paid less than they would have been paid if there had been um, competition. In fact, there's been some academic research that suggests that they've been paid less than they should have been paid. Mm-hmm. All of these cases, of course, depend on a lawsuit, and somebody has to bring that lawsuit Uh, You mentioned in your book the litigation gap. I wonder if you could help us understand just what the problem is when it comes to getting the right things into court, I suppose. Right. So, yeah, if you you look back at the history of antitrust law, uh, which goes all the way back to 1890, there have been thousands and thousands of cases, but almost all of them have involved lawsuits by businesses against other businesses or consumers represented by uh, class action lawyers against businesses. There have been very few cases brought by employees or on, or by uh, plaintiff's lawyers on behalf of employees or by the government on behalf of employees. So that's what I mean by the litigation gap. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. One is there are basic logistical and financial problems with bringing lawsuits on behalf of employees. Um, Putting together a class in a class action is expensive. Um, Employee classes tend to be smaller than consumer classes. You know, there are these kinds of difficult problems. But I think a lot of it is just a basic bias against labor that has existed in this country for a long time. Um, especially among the courts and among the, the kind of, um, the, the legal elite to, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a, there's been a kind of skepticism in the world of antitrust law about labor because labor, you know, traditionally would organize in unions, which it was believed suppressed rather than advanced competition. Um, and, and that kind of skepticism has, uh, has just kind of kept going, even though union, you know, unions just are not nearly as uh, powerful as, the, as they once were. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with University of Chicago law professor Eric Posner, author of How Antitrust Law Failed Workers. The book is a powerful examination of the causes of inequality and wage stagnation in America. So we live in a gig economy. Many workers actually uh, live in that gig economy, and that presents new challenges for workers. In your book, you talk about how they get exploited as contract employees. I wonder if you could 
share with us your thoughts. Right. So uh, this, uh, the gig economy, uh, you know, everybody thinks of Uber, which which is a nice example. You you might think of a of before Uber came along, a lot of cities had uh, lim- limousine services or limo services. I guess they still do, but the way they typically worked is that somebody owned you know a bunch of cars and then employed a bunch of drivers, and so those drivers were employees. They got salaries, they got benefits. Maybe it was not a great job, but but you know they they got you know certain protections as employees minimum wage. Um, uh, they could form a union if they wanted. Um, the gig economy changed all this in some sectors of the economy. And so now you have uh, uh, something like Uber, where the drivers are no longer employees. They're what are called independent contractors, which, which really means they're treated as if they're each individual businesses or, you know, like the sole proprietorships. Right. Now they own their own car, which is in some ways nice if they have it. But if they don't have a car, they have to borrow to buy one. And often they borrow from <laughs> Uber. So that just puts them in debt uh, to the company. And Uber thinks of itself as as kind of like, you know, it sells access to its platform to these independent contractors and then just matches them up with uh, passengers, sort of like a, a dating service. And so if the drivers are no longer employees and are instead independent contractors, they're not protected by the minimum wage law. They're not allowed to unionize because only, well, there's, this is kind of complicated, but generally speaking, employees unionize, independent contractors are not allowed to. Um, and, you know, all these other laws that out maximum hour laws, there are all kinds of laws that protect employees that do not protect, uh, independent contractors. And so uh, people have accused Uber of of just effectively figuring out a way to hire people while avoiding the protections of uh, of employment law. So that's the sense in which people think Uber is exploiting uh, these these people. So uh, so this has created problems. It's created uh, complications for antitrust law also because. Um, there was this concern that Uber, while doing this, was driving um, competitors out of the market. This is another aspect of the gig economy, which is that it tends to operate through platforms. Um, and we're all familiar with platforms from you know Facebook and Twitter and Apple. Platforms are networks, and they tend to crowd out competitors. And so there used to be lots of ride-sharing platforms, and now... In many places, it's a duopoly of Uber and Lyft, or sometimes it's just Uber, and maybe there's a little bit of competition from taxi services. So we may end up now with, uh, you know, a kind of monopoly of um, ride-sharing services in, ma- in many places, creating a problem for antitrust law. There's a question here whether antitrust law is really the solution to this problem. You know, can antitrust cases be, be brought on behalf of drivers? or for that matter, passengers against Uber. So that's been tried unsuccessfully because of complications in the law. This is an old theme in antitrust that, you know, sometimes because of technological changes, firms are, are able to obtain lawful monopolies. Antitrust law doesn't allow, doesn't prevent you from obtaining any uh, monopoly if you just do it because you've, uh, you know, you've invented a new way of doing things or new technology. 
But um, but th- but harm does result if, if the company can raise prices for consumers and push down wages uh, for workers. And um, antitrust law is not really a solution. Usually, some kind of regulation is necessary to address the problem. Mm-hmm. You do address in your book some of the legal tools that might be used to address the concentration of labor markets given the the limits of antitrust law. And again, the book is How Antitrust Failed Workers. Eric Posner is our guest. Eric, maybe you could uh, share with us what some of those might be. Right. So labor market uh, concentration refers to the existence of, you know, relatively few employers competing for, for workers. So um, if you live in a small town and there are, you know, two factories that employ, let's say, some kind of skilled mechanic, um, and one factory, you know, lowers wages a little bit, your only option may be to go to the other factory if they have openings. So you don't really have much bargaining power. Whereas if you're in a, you know, maybe a large city, you have more options, which should result in higher wages for you. So, so that place where that town with only two employers, we say there's high concentration and that's generally bad uh, for workers. Now, when the high concentration occurs naturally, you know, there's a town with no employer, like a little tiny town with no employers and like someone sets up a warehouse. Now there's just one employer. You know, that's not illegal. That could be good for the people who live there. But the general worry is that concentration increases as a result of mergers. So you might have a town which starts off with, you know, 10 factories or chicken processing plants or warehouses and the firms merge so that now there are fewer employers than there were before. And and I think probably the biggest thing that antitrust law can do is is block those mergers. And that's really a big focus of my book is trying to encourage Justice Department and the FTC and, and Congress and other agencies and institutions to take seriously the harm from mergers. And, and there's there's now an accumulating body of evidence that shows that there have been way too many mergers in the United States and that these mergers have harmed workers as well as consumers mm-hmm. because they've resulted in too few firms competing with each other, uh, in other words, high concentration. And that means both very low wages, very high prices, big profits for already wealthy people at the expense of, uh, of everybody else. So, so that's my, you know, I would talk about, you know, merger reform as, as really the most important way to address this problem. Why has it taken so long? I mean, obviously the machinery of government these days is bogged down with partisanship and a lot of other uh, issues, but uh, is that the answer? Is that why we we're still waiting here? Uh, you, and again, you're, you're, you're telling us that progress has been made, is being made as we speak, but if we could only move it up a bit to deal with the impact of mergers like Albertson and Kroger, I guess. Well, I think people only began to understand this problem relatively recently. Uh, I would say about around 2016, Mm -hmm. 2017, uh, economists began to publish papers pointing out the high level of labor market concentration in this country. And it might be surprising, but it just didn't really occur to anybody <laughs> before then that this was a problem. Yeah. Um, so 
there, a lot of credit should go to the economists, many of them young people who were looking at things in a new way. They also had access to new data that hadn't been available before. And they wrote these papers that have been super influential. And these were really papers that um, got me interested in the topic. So we're talking um, really only seven, eight years ago. And this work did get the attention of the Obama White House very quickly and got the attention of the Justice Department pretty quickly. They started launching some uh, criminal cases, actually, um, against uh, some firms that had engaged in no-poach agreements, which are actually criminal in, in certain circumstances. And then, you know, interest, uh, you know, I so I wrote about it. Other um, law professors wrote about it. Various public interest groups got interested in it. Um, some people in Congress got interested in it. There were hearings. The FTC held hearings. So, you know, by the standards of government, I actually think it's been pretty quick. And so we get our first merger review in 2022, as I mentioned. It probably started in 2021. That seems pretty quick to me. Mm -hmm. The merger guidelines are being revised. So what's really, you know, what I'd like to, I think we're at the cusp now of a much more serious and sustained enforcement. Uh, the question is whether, you know, whether this will continue, but I, I'm pretty optimistic and I'm actually pretty impressed that the government has uh, responded as, as rapidly uh, as it has. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can be optimistic uh, because you've written a book that is obviously going to have an impact here. The book is How Antitrust Failed Workers. It's by Eric Posner, and he is a University of Chicago law professor, and he has been generous enough to give us uh, some time here at Reader's Corner. Eric, I can't thank you enough for writing the book, for joining us today. I think we have what we need here. And um, let's hope we uh, move this process right along in the future. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much. That was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.